Chapter 8 Over the next several days, Penny tried to stay out of the way of his foster family. At school, he was quiet, going to his classes, ignoring the insults hurled after him as he walked the halls. The snake was still there, inside, coiled up but sleeping, he thought. After breaking Tommy's jaw, the other kids gave him a lot of room, showing him a wary respect, like someone would give to an animal that had proven itself to be dangerous. Penny didn't mind. He wanted to be left alone. He came home and, after the family had gone to sleep, he'd sneak outside with some food, usually some leftover chicken or a hot dog, and feed the stray cat. He'd spend hours hiding out in a place underneath the hedges in the backyard, where there was just enough light from a street light to see as he petted the cat, listening to him purr as he ate whatever food Penny brought out to him. The cat was a ginger tabby, a big cat but mild-mannered, not at all as aloof as other cats Penny had known. After eating, the cat would wrestle with Penny's hand before Penny would start stroking him on his furry pink belly. The cat would relax at Penny's gentle touch, dozing flat on his back for hours. In the quiet of the night, Penny would listen to the cat's purring. He found it relaxing. Some nights it was all that kept him from giving in to the snake, striking at the people who tormented him. This had gone on for several nights. One night, as he went to the spot where he'd been meeting the cat, he found Danny and Paul waiting for him in the space under the hedge. Danny grinned at him. Paul was sitting on the ground next to him. Danny was holding the cat in his lap, patting it. Nice kitty, Penny, Danny said. Let him go, Danny, Penny said. Mom said no pets, Penny, Danny said. Yeah, no pets, Penny, Paul said. He hasn't done anything to you. Let him go. Dad wants to take him to the shelter, but I don't think so, Danny said. He reached into his pocket and took out a pocket knife. I think we need to teach you a lesson. Don't, Penny said, tensing. I think we need to kill this cat to show you. You need to know your place. You need to do what you're told. Don't, Penny said again. I think you, I know you think you are so tough after what you did to Tommy, but you aren't so much, Danny said, opening the knife, the blade clicking into place. Right, Paul added. Don't, Penny said one more time as Danny shifted his grip on the knife slightly. The cat, oblivious to the danger, lay in Danny's lap, purring. The snake struck, lashing out so quickly that for a second, Penny didn't even know what happened. Danny and Paul were there, and then suddenly they weren't. There were two large piles of ash wearing their clothes, their shoes, and the cat hopping quickly to his feet and looking around, confused before running away into the darkness. Penny stood up, feeling the snake gripping him, controlling him now as he turned back to the house. He could sense Mr. and Ms. Briggs in their bedroom. He could tell they were sleeping. He didn't know how he could tell. He just could. He headed back to the house. Chapter 9 
Drew was in her room working on an assignment given to her by one of her teachers when Lala came in to tell her her father wanted to see her. Wear a light jacket and comfortable shoes to walk in, Lala said, and waited patiently as Drew went into the walk-in closet to pick out a jacket and a pair of tennis shoes. Are we going somewhere, she asked Lala as she sat on her bed and tied her shoes. He did not inform me, ma'am, Lala said. Of course he didn't, Drew muttered. She got up and followed Lala up the hallway to her father's room. Come, Drew heard her father's call when Lala rapped on the door twice. Drew opened the door, Lala waiting in the hall, waiting to see if he had further instructions for her. You can go, Lala, Drew's father said. Thank you, sir, Lala said, curtsying, pulling the door closed. He was dressed in similar clothes as the ones he wore when she'd first met him, she thought, and he had an umbrella hooked over one arm. Are we going somewhere? Drew asked again. Yes, we are. He unhooked the umbrella from his arm and pointed towards the shelf that surrounded his bed where those mysterious globes sat. One of those globes was flashing blue, alternating with its usual dark green. These globes helped me to monitor the various worlds we are responsible for. This one indicates that something has happened. Something that concerns us, I should say. Like what? Drew asked. I don't know yet. It could be any number of things. It looks like there was a vast explosion of power there recently. Really? Like a war? No, our kind of power. And you want to check it out? Yes. Such a thing will not go unnoticed by those who would prey upon us. More than likely, someone is already looking for the source of the explosion. Also, we need to find the source and do something to neutralize it. Neutralize it, Drew asked. He sighed. Find whoever is responsible and destroy him or her. We can't allow someone who has no training with this sort of power to exist. It would be a danger to everyone. How do we know this person has no training, Drew asked. For one thing, we both know the only people who could provide it, and they have said nothing of this. For another, the fact that the explosion happened. Someone who had been properly trained would not have allowed that to occur. Will we have time to see Mom, Drew asked. You will never see your mom again, Drew. We have already discussed this. He turned and walked towards the door in the back wall, the one that was always closed and radiated swirling power behind it. Drew felt sad at being reminded about her mother, but she also felt a twinge of excitement at finally finding out what was behind that door. He took out his key ring and located the big skeleton key, inserting it into the lock and turning. Drew heard it unlock. He pushed the door and it opened into blackness. He stepped aside and gestured that she was to go first. Drew took a deep breath and walked through the door and paused. She was on a glowing path a few feet wide that twisted off into the darkness. The sky was full of stars. It was obviously not a closet and obviously the other side of that door was a place outside of Marginecore. What is this place? she asked. It is the walk of worlds, the path to all the worlds in the multiverse.
She could feel him using his own power, reaching out, manipulating, changing, lining the path were nearly invisible swirling whirlpools of power, each of them completely separate from the others. What are those, she asked. Summonings. People who want my attention, asking for my help. There are a lot of them, Drew said. Indeed, he said. Fortunately, none of them are powerful enough to compel me to attend to them. They can only beg. We're safe in ignoring them. But if somebody needs help, our duty comes first. And, as you said, there are a lot of them. If we responded to them all, we could never have time for anything else. Come, we have a long walk ahead of us. After saying that, he set off down the path, his shoes clicking on it. Drew followed him. But if they need our help, it is not our duty to help individuals, only humanity as a whole. Drew walked next to him on the path, neither of them speaking for some time, and after a few steps, he started whistling quietly, a tune Drew didn't recognize. How come our enemies don't use this path to sneak into Marginkor, Drew asked. The path doesn't exist until I create it, and I don't create it unless I need it. Drew looked around with her special senses that could tell from everything she could see. She could see his influence on the distant trees, a blurry outline of his face in the moon when it came into view. She could see him in the clouds that were outlined by starlight. You are everywhere in this place, Drew said. It's because I made this place. Once we arrive at our destination, it will no longer exist until we need it to go back home. What about the creatures that live here, she asked. She could see fireflies darting in the darkness. She could tell there were heartbeats along the path, though she didn't know what sort of creatures possessed those hearts. They will no longer exist. But they'll be back, right, when you remake this place? It is not likely. It's not something that I spend a lot of thought on. What are you expecting to find when we get there, Drew asked. More than likely a long-lost relative. Judging from the size of the eruption, it was someone very powerful, and such powerful power is almost certainly re uh, a relation of ours. Does this happen a lot? Sometimes, but not nearly as forcefully as this one. Whoever did this possesses astonishing power. What are we going to do? That will depend upon the circumstances when we find this person. They walked in silence except for the sounds of their shoes on the path. Whoever did this has not been freed as we have been. The process for ridding one of the asteroids is known only to us and those who have been trained. So if this person is powerful enough to do something like this without being freed, it is something that must be handled carefully. What do you want me to do? Drew asked. Watch. Learn. I may call upon you to use your training. You must prepare yourself for violence. Violence? Are you expecting any? Yes, almost certainly. They walked on, this time for quite some time, without speaking. You will not run away from me to find your mother, he said. I wasn't planning that, Drew said, and he snorted. Yes, you were. You won't be able to flee me. Even if you did, I could find you easily. How? That is something you will learn later in your training. 
They said nothing else until the path came to an end, changing into a simple sidewalk. They were walking on the streets of what Drew thought was a small city. She could sense it was late at night, possibly even the wee hours of the morning. Drew could see a street and a row of brick buildings on the other side of the street. Most of them seemed to be stores of different kinds. It was night, the street, light, street lights were painting the street and the sidewalks, and a couple of cars she saw parked there. The air smelled faintly of rain. I believe it's breakfast time, her father said, glancing around, turning to his right and heading up the sidewalk. She fell in the step next to him and saw, up ahead on the other side of the street, what looked like a diner that was open, a few cars parked nearby. One of the cars was a police car, and there was a motorcycle parked in a place near the door. Drew reached out and could tell there were people inside the diner. We're really going to eat something? We don't have any money, Drew said. We have whatever we need, he said as they reached the place. There was a newspaper dispenser at the door and he opened it. She didn't see him put any money inside and took out a paper. She followed him inside. It looked like any other diner she'd ever been in, she thought. There was a man in the back working over the stove and griddle, making the orders, and a tired-looking woman up front wiping the counter, a few people sitting in booths around the place. The woman wiping the counter turned and smiled at them, though Drew felt could sense that she just wanted to go home. Just seat yourself wherever you like, the woman said. Thank you, Drew's father said, tipping his hat before tucking it under his arm. He selected a booth away from the other occupied ones, leading Drew there. There were menus on the table, and the woman behind the counter came out, holding an order pad as they sat down. Do you know what you want to drink, she asked. Coffee for me. Orange juice for my daughter. Drew pulled over a menu and was looking it over as the server went to the, went to the back to get their drinks. Look around. What can you tell me about the other people in here, he asked, speaking softly but not quite whispering. There were two men sitting in a booth on the other side, also away from everyone. Drew focused on them. They were both young and ragged-looking. Their clothes were dirty. They needed to shave. They kept glancing at the police officers warily. Those two over there are planning something, Drew said. What? Drew focused a little more intently and found that she could get an impression as to what they were whispering to each other about. They want to rob somebody's house, some rich family that is away. We need to do something. Why? Because they're going to be stealing from those people. That's wrong, Drew said. He snorted again. The server came back by with their drinks, putting them on the table, then asked ten taking their order. He asked for waffles and sausage and ordered the same for Drew. The server took their order, jotting it down quickly on her pad of receipts, and left. It's not our problem. He took a sip of his coffee and Drew could smell it. It was rich and strong, she thought, though she rarely drank it herself. What else? She shifted her attention to the server, who put the slip of paper from her pad that was their order up on the wheel so the cook could, in back could make it. She's really tired. She's been working all day and now she's working all night, Drew said, nodding at her. Somebody called in sick and she has to cover for her. Good. What else? She focused on the back, the cook. Happy. Having a good night, 
His mother is visiting. He hasn't seen her in a while, and she'll be at his apartment waiting with his wife when he gets home. What else? The only other ones left were the officers, and Drew focused on them next. Trust, she said, nodding at him. They know each other really well. They've been working together a long time. They're tired. Something's going on. Wait. They're scared of something. Any ideas as to what, he asked, reading the paper. Something about people disappearing. There's something that they haven't told everyone. Something they don't understand. That sounds like something that would concern us, he said, turning the newspaper around so she could see it. As does this. He tapped the article on the front page. It was an article about a local family that had disappeared. It was at the bottom of the first page, under a big article about some international crisis. Drew glanced at the article, reading it quickly. You think that this has something to do with what brought us here, she asked. The article says the police are looking for a foster child who was staying with the family. I suspect that is who we need to be looking for as well. How do we find him? He'll probably use the power again soon. Now that he's done so once, it'll be difficult to avoid doing it again once he's recovered. As it builds, we'll be able to sense it. You said something else might be looking for him too? Yes. If this outburst didn't go unnoticed, then there may be others searching for him. Those will be drawn to his power. They'll be drawn to ours too, though. We will need to be careful. Why doesn't anyone look at us? It's like they don't see us. They see us. They just ignore us, as I wish. The server brought their food, putting it on the table in front of them, and Drew poured syrup over her waffle and started eating. I'm glad you have your appetite, he said, after the server topped off his coffee and left. Why? I think this might be a trying night for both of us. I may require you to actually use your abilities. You will need all your strength. Finish eating, and we'll go out and see what we can find some trouble to get into. There was a park a few blocks away from the house, and Penny had gone there, looking under the bushes for a place to curl up and sleep. After doing what he'd done with the boys and then their parents, he'd been exhausted and was still exhausted a day later. Penny was no stranger to sleeping on the street. Many times he'd run away from a foster home and had to fend for himself. This was a bit different, though. Before, he'd been running from the people he'd been placed with. Now he was running from something he really couldn't escape. He was running from himself. He found a place underneath some bushes, a nice hollow spot where he couldn't be seen from any of the paths, just outside of the glow cast from the security lights. He crawled inside and curled up, trying to get some sleep. But sleep wouldn't come. He felt something, something dangerous, was looking for him. If he tried, he could even sort of tell where it was coming from. It seemed to come from the sky. He was wondering if this god that he'd heard so much about was actually real and was looking for him for what he'd done. Then he noticed that whatever it was moved about, flicking around, and he couldn't imagine something as powerful as this god would do that. That would probably take up the whole sky and fixed an unblinking eye staring right at him. This had the feeling of one or more things searching for him.
He thought about lashing out with the snake again, but he knew that this would be a mistake in this case. He felt like these things that were looking for him knew about the snake quite well, and they actually wanted him to use it on them. He closed his eyes, trying once again to sleep. As he started to doze, he could feel them, four or five things, looking for him. Thoughts, alien, strange, and a compulsion and order from another vastly powerful being that must be obeyed. A world of strangeness where almost everything was dead. Everything except for one thing, one powerful, hungry thing, right in the middle of everything, searching for something to satisfy that deep, powerful hunger. Hungry and searching now for him, for Penny, now that it knew he existed. Suddenly he could hear something in the bushes coming towards him, and he woke up scared, still halfway inside the nightmare, and the snake lashed out before he had a chance to stop it. It was a police officer, a man parting the bushes with his nightstick holding a flashlight. Penny barely had time to see his face as it flashed very bright and then disappeared into a collapsing pile of ashes. Chapter 10 Drew and her father were emerging from the diner when it happened, a flash that she felt more than saw. She looked at her father, who had paused on the sidewalk. He turned to her, one of his eyebrows arched. Did you notice that? he asked. What was it? Drew asked. It was the person we're looking for using his power again. I believe it came from that direction. He nodded across the street. Yes, I think so too, Drew said as they set off in that direction. The next street and the one after that was lying in stores, all of them closed. A single cat, a ginger tabby, lay atop the trash can, watching them as they crossed the street, and Drew could hear crickets singing in the night. Other than that, it was quiet. After a few blocks, they could see the park, lit along the paths with street lights, deserted except for a single police car parked at the curb with the motor running and the door on the driver's side open. Drew could feel something else, something odd. Something's in the sky, she whispered as they reached the car. Her father looked inside and Drew could hear the radio. One Adam 7, what is your location? It was a woman's voice. One Adam 7, please respond. Do you require backup? Bradshaw, respond, please. As Drew stood there, the voice spoke again. All units, 1 Adam 7 is not responding. Last location is Jefferson Park. Another woman's voice responded. 1 Adam 13, responding. I think that means another officer is on the way, Drew's father said. He was looking at the clear night sky. Have you noticed that we're being stalked? Something in the air, Drew said. Yes, there are four of them, whatever they are. Why are they hunting us, Drew asked. They are drawn our power. I think perhaps they're confu we're confusing them by our presence here. He walked deeper into the park and Drew followed. What do you think happened to the cop, she asked. I suspect the person we're looking for killed him or her. This person is extremely dangerous, Drew. When we find him, you must be careful of what you do or say. 
We can handle him, though, can't we? Yes, I believe so, though that burst of power was considerable. Prudence is never a bad idea. Okay, Drew said. Where are we going? We need an area that is well lit and open. Why? Because we're about to become involved in a fight. With that, he left the path, and Drew could see where he was going. A large area, not as well lit as he'd probably like, but with no trees or buildings. He walked a little more quickly, Drew having to run a few steps to keep up, and then when he reached the middle of the open area, he stopped and turned around. Drew could feel it before she turned. Something was behind them now, something not human, something that came down from the sky. Stop right there, her father said, as she tried to see what it was that had been stalking them. It took a moment for her to make it out there in the darkness. It looked like a shadow of a woman with big bat-like wings. Where her eyes would be, there were two red glowing points, but the rest of her body was completely dark. Not black so much, as when the figure moved, she could see stars inside of it. What is that? she asked. A living doorway, he said, created to kidnap people, taking them to the world its master inhabits. Why? I have no way of knowing for sure, but I suspect it's not for tea and cucumber sandwiches. The thing started walking towards them again, and Drew could see stars inside of it didn't move. Whom do you serve, he asked it. The thing paused, looking at him. Where are the others, Drew asked. Two are above us, circling. The last one is nearby, but I think its attention is focused elsewhere. How do we fight them, Drew asked. I'm not sure. There's nothing there to attack. They're merely animate doorways into another world. Maybe we should just go through, Drew said. That is a thought, but I'd rather know where we're going and what we'll be facing first. The thing continued walking towards them, and Drew could feel the circling creatures above were growing more focused on her when they all stopped moving. What's happening? Drew asked. That's when she felt it, another flash of power like the one they'd felt earlier. This one was much closer, in the park. Looks like the fourth one found him, Drew's father said. The one they had been facing Extending, extended its wings and took off, and Drew could feel the other two above them fly off too, all of them heading to the same place, back near where the police car was parked. Penny knew he'd been caught, that whatever was hunting him had found him. He started running after the snake took the cop before he felt something behind him, something that wasn't there before. He turned to see something standing on the path behind him, near the place in the bushes that concealed the cop's ashes. It looked like a woman with big bat-like wings and glowing red points where the eyes would be. Those impossible eyes were focused on him, and he knew that this thing was not alone. There were others, and they would be here soon. No, he said, no. Again, the snake lashed out, even though he knew, even as he did it, that it was a mistake. There was nothing there. Even though he could see the thing coming towards him, could feel it, when his power reached out to touch it, there was nothing there, nothing at all. He could feel something behind the place where the thing stood, some sort of mind guiding it, but the thing itself was just a will of the mind 
of that mind given shape and a mission to search everywhere until it had found him. That mind, he felt, was powerful and alien and so very hungry. He turned and started to run and didn't realize that another one of the things had landed behind him until he ran into it and disappeared through it. As his world went dark, he could hear the animating force of the thing laughing. Hello, this is J. Franklin Evans. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories That Suck. Did it suck? Let me know. Be sure to like and subscribe.